We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6 is where we will pick it up. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. We could just leave right now. That's the whole thing. That sums up everything we're going to talk about tonight. Be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is a first world problem. According to a recent World Mental Health Survey, out of 14 countries studied, Americans were the most anxious of all the countries. Of those 14 countries, it included Nigeria, Lebanon, and the Ukraine. But America came on the top. A related study, the Unisys Security Index Report, says in a survey of 13,000 people around the world, Americans are the most anxious. Fear of terrorism, war, computer viruses, hacking, identity theft, finances, and other security-related concerns are soaring in the good old USA. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America tells us nearly one in five Americans, that's over 18%, suffer from anxiety disorders. We spend over $2 billion annually on anti-anxiety medication and another, get this, $40 billion in related costs to the country. Be anxious for nothing. This is in the imperative. This is a command of Scripture. Be anxious for nothing. Take that one home with you. The moment you start to feel stress, realize God has commanded you not to. You might wonder, well, how? How do we do that? We'll get there. But isn't it interesting that Paul has just finished declaring the Lord is near? He said that in verse 5. The Lord is near. And follows it up with, be anxious for nothing. Well, if I know the Lord is near, it decreases my anxiety. And the further away a nation, a people, or a person get from the Lord, the more the anxiety. The closer we get to the Lord, the less the anxiety. When we press into Jesus, the anxiety dissipates. But when we get away from him, the anxiety increases. It is, it's as sure as gravity. Feel free to test it out in your lives if you'd like to. I would advise you test it out by getting closer to the Lord <laughs> as opposed to the opposite. David, when anxiety hit in David's life, he drew near to the Lord. He said in Psalm 139.23, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. That word for anxious thoughts in the Hebrew is seraph. Seraph is translated disquieting thoughts, troubling thoughts, worrisome thoughts. It's the processing of information that causes distress. Be, Paul says, anxious for nothing. Jesus uses the same word that Paul uses for anxious when he compares the anxious heart to thorny soil. Can you hear me okay? Because I don't want you to miss any of what Paul is teaching here. Jesus says, Matthew 13, 22, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry 
the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word of God and it becomes unfruitful. Same word for anxious. It's the Greek word merimnao and it is translated worry. To be troubled with care. The Hebrew disquieting, troublesome thoughts. The Greek to be troubled with cares. And as compellingly as Paul commanded, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now he gives a companion command. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, right there, one verse, it's the key to a worry-free life. The key to a worry-free life begins with your part. And your part begins with prayer and supplication. Now, Paul has already talked about prayers and petitions. At the end of Ephesians chapter 6, he said, with all things and all prayers and all petitions. And back then we talked about the difference. Petitions would be synonymous with supplications. Prayer, the word prosuke, is a two-way communication. Okay, so that's when we're talking to God, but it's also when we're listening to God. It's how we come before God. It's really the relationship we have with Him. And then supplication is we're asking for stuff. We're, we're seeking His aid, His help. We have needs. We're bringing those before Him. God wants both. Not just prayers of need, but also prayers where we heed, where we listen. He says, with thanksgiving. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. And that does not mean the annual prayer over the turkey. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a thanksgiving prayer. It goes like this, for each new morning with its light, for rest and shelter of the night, for health and food, for love and friends, for everything thy goodness sends. It's lovely. Generic appreciation. Generalized thanksgiving. By prayer and supplication, with a thankful heart, you know? But just kind of thanksgiving in the air, like the smells of the dinner cooking in November. Edgar Guest says this, When turkey's on the table laid and good things I may scan, I'm thankful that I wasn't made a vegetarian. It's a good one. This attitude of thankfulness in prayer being generic, broad-based, I'm just kind of a, a thankful person when I pray, that's what I call gravy gratitude. You know how at Thanksgiving you take the gravy boat and you pour it, maybe you don't, but I do, not just on the potatoes, but on the stuffing and on the turkey. If there's anything on the plate, with the exception of the yams, I like to leave those pure and, and untouched by anything but marshmallows. Sometimes that's how we approach prayer with Thanksgiving. I just got to kind of throw the thanksgiving out there. Um, God, thank you for being generically good to me, and thank you for my family, and thank you for my house, and my friends, and all that good stuff. Now, I've got some things I need to ask you. And that is not what the apostle is talking about. Get this down. It is not rhetoric designed to sound religious and get us into that right place. I don't believe Paul is talking about general thanks at all. Prayer and supplication with thankfulness is about being thankful for the very thing that should make you anxious. When was the last time you prayed? Lord, this situation is so messed up and I thank you for it. Father, I'm in pain. 
Bless your name. Thank you, Lord, for the tribulation. Now you might say, that's nuts. Why would you do that? Because I know the Lord. Why would you thank Him for hard times and difficulties in your life? Because I know you work all things together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Verse 7, Paul writes, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, that is all thought, all mind, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So not only is there our part, your part, which is by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, but there's also your heart. That is your heart and your soul. The peace of God, he says, will guard hearts and minds. I love that. I love that he breaks it down. He doesn't just say, the peace of God will guard your heart. No, it will guard your heart, which is your spirit man, your spirit woman. And it will guard your mind, your soul, your thoughts, your reason, your intellect. The peace of God is not just esoteric and spiritual. It is also soulical, if you can use that as a word. It gets into our thinking, our thought processes. The battleground of the mind, the peace of God comes in. David, Psalm 43, verse 5, said, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. Anxious? Worried? Why? Allow the peace of God to come into the mind as well as the heart. Psalm 94, which is a a post-exilic psalm, that means it was written after the exiles came back from Babylon. Psalm 94, 19 says, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, Your consolations delight my soul. Does that happen for you? As anxiety piles up, do you then turn to the Lord and find it go away? That's the key. That we bring it to Him. Now we've, we've made this biblical distinction before that there is, the Bible calls it, peace with God. And there is the peace of God. Peace with God is what Jesus fought for us at Calvary. I have peace with God. There is no longer the specter of God's wrath hanging over my head because of what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 4.24, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fought that. But here's the thing. If we stop right there, anxiety can still wreak havoc with your soul. you understand what I'm saying? That I have peace with God, someone might say. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I have heard people say this. I know my salvation is secure, but that's not helping me with this mess right now. I have peace with God. Well, then you need the peace of God. Ironically, if you think about it, once you have peace with God, what is there to worry about? Peace with God that Jesus bought boots the door open for the peace of God to flow into our hearts and into our minds such that we don't worry any longer, such that anxiety evaporates. So the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension because it doesn't make rational human sense. Remember that. The peace of God does not comport with your circumstances. 
people look at you and say, what is wrong with you? You should be freaking out right now. It's the peace of God. It's the peace that only He brings. It doesn't make sense to be at peace in turmoil unless, of course, you happen to be God. Then it makes all kinds of sense. He's the one who walks right through the angry mob. You know, he, He's the one who feeds the multitude when there's no way that they can be fed. He pays his taxes from a fish's mouth. He's never worried about that. He sleeps through the storm. He's the one who cares about others from the cross. Your part is to take it to the Lord. Your heart, your soul are safeguarded because of, number three, His heart. His heart. And listen, get this, the definition of the peace of God is that which is intrinsic to God. Don't think of the peace of God as some extra thing that He kind of injects into your life. The peace of God is who He is. It's His person. Does God ever fret? Does God ever worry? Is God ever anxious? Is He ever fearful? Is He ever careworn? Spurgeon calls the peace of God, I like this, the unruffled serenity of the infinitely joyful God. The eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. The peace of God is His peace. That's what He offers you in Christ Jesus. Having gained peace with God, he says, now let my peace flow over you. Now let my peace enter, not just your heart, but your thoughts. So that you don't strive, so that you don't fret, so that you don't fear the peace of God. Isaiah 26.3, we know this verse, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Literally, you will keep in peace, peace. Shalom, shalom, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. And that's the peace that we're talking about. It is not a peace that the world can offer, and it's not meditating yourself down into a quiet place. It's the peace that comes directly from the Spirit of God present in your life, and it doesn't make any human sense. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, in the midst of turmoil, Seek the peace of God. He offers it to you. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things. Months ago when I knew Philippians was coming, I thought we're going to have to break down those words. We're going to have to do Greek words for every single word in that verse just to get it. And I started to do that. You know what the Greek words are? They're true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. The translation is perfect. I realized by doing Greek word study, there's nothing that could be added to it. It says what he means. And it's beautiful. And it's an excellent way to live. And many of you have heard this verse, Philippians 4.8. It's often quoted. It's on little placards in Christian bookstores. We read it in books. We think it through. We, We memorize it. We quote it because it's such a potent and sweet and powerful verse. I, I last month, did a wedding for 
Aubrey Hoffman, now Aubrey Burgess, Wes, Wes and Aubrey, and did their wedding out at Bowman's Bay, and it was beautiful. It was a great day. And I asked them beforehand, I said, why don't you guys tell me what wedding verses you want me to teach from or, or talk about in, in your ceremony? And I've done that usually with, with just about every wedding I've done. I say, give me some verses. What, what do you want me to teach? And oftentimes people will say Ephesians 5, you know, or 1 Corinthians 13. Every now and then I'll get some weirdo with a Leviticus verse, but not very often. And so I asked them, well, what, what verses do you want? Aubrey chose Philippians 4, 8. I had never used that verse in a wedding. I looked at it. I read it. It's a great verse. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And that's a great way to live in your marriage. Man, just just take that and apply it into the way you treat your spouse and how you live together and function in a marriage. So so I could see the application practically, but I, I still was stumped. The Lord said, look, think about how this is relevant to the love of marriage. And that's when I got it. Look back at chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are what? Excellent. What are the things that are excellent? Philippians 4, 8. It all flows out of love. All of these things come directly from the source of love. Whatever is true. Hey, love rejoices in what is right, what is true. Whatever is honorable. Love honors the other, always. Whatever is right, again, love is interested in what is right. Whatever is pure, love's all about that. Whatever is lovely, enough said. Whatever is of good repute, you go down the list and it all flows from the source of love. Paul says, I want you to love because I want you to be able to understand excellent things. And now here at the end of the letter, he says, and here are the excellent things that love allows you to understand. By the way, the more you love, the more these these traits, these characteristics take place, the more you experience them in your life and the more anxiety drops. Remove these things. Focus on other things. Do this little test. Go home tonight. Read Philippians 4.8 and measure your anxiety. Then watch the news for 10 minutes and measure your anxiety. Or go watch a movie that's got, you know, no, I don't want to tell you to do that. So say, watch a movie that's got bad stuff in it. No, I'm not saying that. But it's amazing. It is amazing how when we think about excellent things, we find peace. You know, David said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Because when we set worthless things before our eyes, we do it thinking, oh, this will be fun, this will be cool, this will feed my desire for information, and stress increases. Anxiety rises. But when we think about excellent things, when we recognize the things truly of the greatest excellence, that would be of Jesus, anxiety drops. Think on these things. Love approves these things. Love discerns these things. Love seeks them out. And by the way, know that there are eight things listed. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute or reputation, excellent, praiseworthy. Eight things. And the number eight in the scriptures is the number for everlasting. 
How do you know that? Well, because the number seven is completion. The number seven speaks of the millennial kingdom. The number eight, eight speaks of what happens after that, which is eternity. Eight is the number of that which is everlasting. These are everlasting things. What is true and honorable and right and on with the list. Eternal things. And I promise you this. There will be no anxiety in eternity. Paul says dwell on these things now. Don't wait until then. Dwell on these things. Now I want to point out just one of them. I will give you one Greek translation because I found it interesting. And it's the phrase of good repute. Of good repute. Literally that word is euphemos. It's where we get our word euphemism. Translated it means of good reputation. Think about things, focus on things that have a good reputation. We get the word euphemism from it because a euphemism is something that is synonymous with something else or synonymous for something else. It's a good substitution. A euphemism for this or that. And the church and the world, get this, desperately need to see people following Jesus with good repute. And we lack that big time in the church. Oh, not you all. This is the perfect group. When was the last time you thought about how your reputation was necessary for someone else's salvation? When was the last time you thought about how you behaved through the week? What you chose to do would impact another person's discipleship or ability to follow the Lord. My behavior? Oh no, in America I'm taught that my behavior is my right. I do what I want to do. I have the right to do what I want to do unless the police pull me over for it. Are we willing to give that stuff up? Are we willing for the sake of reputation? Are we willing to emulate Jesus? Or even Paul says, well, watch this. It's your part, your heart, God's heart. And then finally, it's what we impart. That is so important in this whole issue of the anxiety in our lives coming down. Paul says in verse 9, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Do you hear what he just said? First he says, the peace of God guards my heart and my mind. And now he says, the God of peace is with me. That's how the peace of God works. You don't have the peace of God unless you have the God of peace, right? And he says, practice these things, live this excellent way. Think about what you're doing and you open the door wide for God to be present in every decision, every action, every behavior of your life. Why don't we focus more on that? I I don't understand it, and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about myself, but I do not understand why we as Christians aren't racing after holiness. Hard after purity. You know, seeking only all that which is true and honorable and excellent and right and pure. Why as Christians do we ever fall into the trap of saying, oh, it's cool. I can believe this and do that. See, people can't dwell on what they haven't seen. And Paul says, I want you to dwell on these things, and I'm your example. Because I dwell on these things. 
And you remember, Philippi, when I was there with you, I did these things, you do that. And if you're not sure what that looks like, do what I did. Well, that's arrogant. No, it's Paul following Jesus. And as Paul follows Jesus, he says, follow me. As Paul emulates Jesus, he says, emulate me because I'm doing what he does. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? I only do what I see the Father doing. So if you want to be godly, do what Jesus did. Because Jesus was godly. Jesus was of good repute. Had a good reputation. I want to strongly encourage you all tonight, because I have dealt with this this week, thought through this a lot. Our reputations, personally, as followers of Jesus, matter. What we do, the choices we make, we may think no one in the world is looking. But ask yourself, if you knew that they were, would you want them to do what you're doing? If you knew people were going to do the exact thing that you just did, would you have done it? Good repute. Good repute. Verse 8 is not only good for us personally, it is good for other people. The command is that we practice these things, we dwell on these things for the sake of others. That they might see our good works and do what, Jesus says? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. So good repute matters. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful. I mean, hey, you can do whatever you want. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful. Hey, I'm under grace, man. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus. It's not on any act of mine that I'm going to be saved. But listen, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but only that of his neighbor. Do you seek for your neighbor? Do you think about your neighbor when you're tipping back that drink? Does it benefit your neighbor to invite them to that movie that is anything but excellent? What am I willing to do? We sing, I surrender all. Really? Really, Rick? Are you willing to give that up for his sake, for her sake? Oh, they don't know. I'm not doing it around them. How do you know? Things of good repute for the sake of someone other than myself. Am I willing to be an excellent example of the love of God in Christ Jesus? Now, we get down to the tail end of this letter. And late in the letter, Paul is is finally about to get to the reason he wrote it. But before he does, one more little rabbit trail. He gives us yet another deeply meaningful aside in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. And that is something prevented the Philippians from connecting with Paul. We don't know what it was. Some say that Epaphroditus was sent out by the people of Philippi and was actually trying to track Paul all over Asia. Couldn't keep up with him until finally Paul got tied down in Rome. Literally. Paul's incarcerated now and finally Epaphroditus connects with him. And Paul goes, oh, I'm sorry that we weren't able to connect. That's what he's saying. But he says in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content In whatever circumstances I am. One of the primary drivers of anxiety in American culture, I believe, 
is discontent. It is a lack of being content with where I am, with what I have, with who I'm surrounded by. Are you content? And there's another place where you can draw a direct line between anxiety and contentment. The more content, the less anxiety. The less content, the more anxiety. And Paul says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having an abundance and of suffering need. And then he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It was Nehemiah, I remind you, who said, do not be grieved, Nehemiah 8.10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I have learned how to be content, Paul says. If I have to go without a meal, no problem. If I am sitting at a table that is laid with the finest, wonderful. If my bank account is full, fantastic, I'm good to go. If my bank account is completely empty and I don't know where my next dollar is coming from, no problem. I know how to be content. The secret is Jesus. The secret of contentment. Jesus. Content is the word archeo, and it means strength and satisfaction. And Paul says the secret to that contentment is Jesus. One of my favorite songs is a James Taylor song. Very relaxing. When I want to relax, I put on JT because few people are more laid back than James Taylor. And one of the songs he writes, an old song, is called The Secret of Life. The secret of life is enjoying the passage of time. It's a nice sentiment. What happens if the passage of time is painful? How do you enjoy that? It starts to break down. It doesn't really work. True contentment is not just kicking back and watching time flow by. True contentment flows from the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Paul says, I know how to be content. How, Paul? The secret to that contentment is Jesus. I have the peace of God. Paul writes to Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, which tells me something. I've known and I've been a striving Christian. Paul says, no, you need contentment mixed in. He says, we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Jesus said in Matthew 6.31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first, you know the verse, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Contentment. And again, I ask you the question, does God, the God of peace, ever fret? Is God ever anxious? Do we ever see Jesus stressed out? And the answer is yes. (laughs) We actually do one time. Just once. In the garden. 
Mark 13.33 says he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be very distressed and troubled. It is the only time in Jesus' entire life and ministry we see him anxious at all. Why was he anxious? Because he was staring down the wrath of God. Because in the garden he knew if this ball continued rolling... If he ended up on the cross, it wasn't the nails, it wasn't your problems or mine, it was the wrath of God that he would have to endure from that place. And that alone caused Jesus to be anxious. So what did he do? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, he made his request known to God. Guess what? God said no. And Jesus replied by saying, Not my will but yours be done. Secret of contentment. The secret of dealing with anxiety. When those anxious thoughts arise, I love the fact that we see Jesus anxious at least once. Because it reminds me that He felt all things. And He does get even my anxiety. But in the moment of anxiety, then He shows me exactly what to do with it by prayer and supplication. I cry out to the Lord. And then whether or not He answers what I desire, whether or not my petition is fulfilled in the way I want it to be, I have peace. Why? Because I know Him. And I know He's going to do what's right and what's good and what's best. Jesus walked out of the garden with complete composure, absolutely calm. We watch Him go through six trials. He never loses it. He never stresses. After that moment, Jesus is at perfect peace even as they're driving the nails. Because He trusts. And at the last says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It is finished. At perfect peace. The secret of contentment is Jesus. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And remember, it was Jesus who said in John 15:5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. He is the secret. Verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, now Paul gets back to the reason he wrote the whole letter in the first place. I'm so glad that Paul rabbit trails. Think about what we wouldn't have in the Scriptures if Paul didn't go on these spiritual rabbit trails. But now he says... You have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, that is at the beginning of the preaching, he's talking about when the gospel first came into Europe. At the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, by the way, Bible students... Check this out. Since we're about to get into Thessalonians on Sunday morning, that's the next book we're going to. Paul was probably in that town in southern Macedonia more than three weeks. Now, I've preached this. I've taught this and talked about it. That It says that he was there for three Sabbaths teaching in the synagogues. And so many of us as Bible teachers have said, Oh, wow, (laughs) three weeks in Thessalonica. And look what he taught in such a short amount of time. He was probably there longer. And this verse is a hint of that when he says, Even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So it's likely he had to be there longer than three weeks if he's getting gifts to support him. And in addition to that, 
We're told that, that Paul was working while he was in Thessalonica. So remember that when we get to Thessalonians on Sunday. It was probably, it doesn't really matter how long he was there. We don't know how long he was there. But long enough to set up shop and long enough to get at least two gifts to come down from Philippi to Thessalonica to support him in his ministry while he was there. That's just kind of a, a, a truism to understand about Paul's ministry. Another thing I will point out about this, Acts 17 verse 2 tells us according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Understand that for those three Sabbaths he was reasoning in the synagogue. That doesn't mean he wasn't still in Thessalonica reasoning with the believers and the fledgling church long after that. Just that for three weeks he was in the synagogue doing it. So we understand a little bit. Now, verse 17, back to it. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit. That word profit is fruit. I seek for the fruit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. He says, a fragrant aroma. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul appropriates here a beautiful Hebrew description, a Hebrew sacrifice. When he talks about this fragrant aroma, he compares, they have sent him money. He's thanking them for the gift. They've sent financial support through Epaphroditus. It's now come to Paul in Rome, and it blows his mind. He's amazed by his Philippian brothers and sisters. And he's now saying to them that I received this and it was like a fragrant aroma. That picture in the Jewish mind is a beautiful picture. Exodus 29, 18. You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma. So weird. You know, you don't think about God smelling something and wanting it to smell good. But for God, the offerings were soothing. He likes the smell of the offering. I like the smell of barbecue. We were barbecuing on the 4th of July last week, and I couldn't eat it because I was sick. And it was very frustrating because the smell, I was enraptured. I was imagining the burger with the cheese dripping off the sides, pickles on it, the tomatoes, maybe some grilled onions. I'm sorry. God smells the offering and it's a soothing aroma to him. Why? Because it was always a portrait. Every offering of Israel was a portrait. Oh, you're going to say of the crucifixion. Yes, and more. In fact, there's prophecy in the offering. Let me just read this to you. Ezekiel, verse 40 of chapter 20. Ezekiel 20, 40 says, On my holy mountain, and God is talking about the days when He restores all Israel to the land. He says, On my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel. Anyone know what high mountain that is? It's Jerusalem. It's Mount Moriah. Which is not the highest mountain in Israel right now, but during the Millennial Kingdom, it will be. It will be lifted up. It will be huge. And He says, On that high mountain declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. 
There I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and your choicest gifts with all your holy things. And understand this, that has never happened. When Ezekiel prophesied this, they were in Babylon, in exile. When the exiles came back, all Israel did not return. There has never been a time since then when all Israel has been in Jerusalem, the highest mountain in the land, worshiping the Lord. It has not happened. God says it will happen. Ezekiel prophesied this is an absolute truth. You can look forward to it. Take it to the bank. It's going to take place. But watch this. He says, as a soothing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. Man, when you come together with your gifts, with your offerings, there in Jerusalem, in the millennial kingdom, it's going to smell sweet to me, God says. Paul's comparing to that. To what? He's calling the gift... Of the Philippians, a sweet aroma. Paul is comparing the the, the gift, the, the offering, the financial gift that they have brought to him. He's comparing that to this same soothing aroma that is future tense for Israel. When all the people are there, and what are they doing? Ezekiel says, they're bringing their gifts and their offerings to God. Now from a human perspective, you might hear that and say, wow, God's greedy. But that's not the godly perspective. In fact, the biblical view of acceptable giving, understand this, giving that truly pleases God is simply this. It is always more fruitful for the giver than for the receiver. It always does more to the person who gives than to the one who receives himself. Paul said, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, In everything... I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's like the Magic Penny song. You know, I I sang that as a kid. It's just like a Magic Penny, hold it tight, you won't have any. Lend it, spend it, and you'll have so many, they'll roll all over the floor. Now that doesn't work with money. The song's about love. Love is something if you give it away. Do you remember that song? Am I the only one saying that in my elementary school chorus? Yeah. Love is something if you give it away. But we Americans, we say money's not. Money's something if you invest it and you get return. That's where money's at. Not according to God. See, according to God, money is something if you give it away. And it will do more for you to give it than it ever does for you to receive it. And that's what we need to understand about giving. God's mentality, God's economy teaches that giving is about what it does to me. When I give, it's how it affects me. God calls us to be generous people who give because He knows what it does to us. How it increases faith. How it decreases anxiety. Wait, what? When you don't have it to give, and you give anyway, anxiety goes down. Now, you would think it would be the opposite. Man, I don't have this hundred bucks this week, but okay, and you drop it in the box, and then you're back there trying to figure out how to get the box open again. No, that's not what happens. You give it, and you recognize 
that He is your provision. I was talking to Andrew Lefebvre two weeks ago. It was the last conversation that I had with him. And Andrew said, you know, I'm I'm a little concerned for my family. He said, you know, who's going to provide for them? I said, Andrew, you never did provide for them. And he he sat there for a minute and kind of went, huh, I never thought about it that way. He never did provide for them. Fathers, mothers, breadwinners, you're not your provision. It doesn't come from you. Whatever you make, whatever you have, it comes from the giving God who wants His people to be like Him. And we are more blessed. We become soothing, pleasing aromas. Man, you got body odor, give. I'm going to let that sink in for some of you. Because you're like, really? To become a soothing aroma to God is to be a person who is generous. Not because God needs it, but because we need it. Listen to this. A recent study confirms, check this out, a neural link between generosity and happiness. They have now discovered this. I love how science slowly catches up. From Seeker.com, economists, psychologists, philosophers have pondered this question for millennia. If one assumes that human behavior is primarily motivated by self-interest, and it is, it seems illogical to willingly sacrifice your resources for someone else. In an attempt to solve this paradox, some experts have theorized that giving satisfies a desire to boost one's standing in a group. Others have suggested it fosters tribal cooperation and cohesion, a key element in mammal survival. Stupid. (laughs) Yet another explanation is that we give only because we expect to receive something in return. That is all the flesh. All three of those explanations are exactly what the flesh would think. But check this out. The real reason, the real answer, a study suggested on Tuesday, may be much much simpler giving makes us happy. It just makes us happy. Scientists conducted an experiment with 50 people at a lab in Zurich who reported on their own happiness levels after acts of generosity. Consistently, they indicated that giving was a feel-good experience. Okay, we all know that, but listen to this. At the same time, MRI scans revealed that an area of the brain linked to generosity triggered a response in another part of the brain linked to happiness. Your brain knows something that we don't. That if I give, ding, 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 it shoots a message over to the happy side that says, hey, that felt good. Hey, give some more. Hey, that's great. And we go back and forth and it just gets better. And miserly thinking will do the opposite. It will raise your anxiety. It will stress you out. Counting every last cent. Watching every dollar. I'm not saying be frivolous. That's not biblical either. Be a good steward of what God has given you. But be generous because that's why He's given it to you. That's the whole point. We have stepped out of human economy and into God's economy. That same article says, quote, Our study provides behavioral and neural evidence that supports the link between generosity and happiness, the team wrote in the journal Nature Communications. Well, isn't that great? God had that figured out a long time ago when it says God loves a cheerful giver. A happy giver. Because giving makes me happy. It provides that cheer. It's why 
It's why Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, speaking to those who are well off, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to get into that, but we will talk about that more. I'm excited, by the way, this fall, we're going to get into the pastoral letters. We'll spend the rest of the summer in First and Second Thessalonians. And then this fall, the pastoral letters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. We're going to talk about, <laughs> it's going to be fun, biblical manhood and womanhood, church leadership, church and finances. And if we still have a church in December, (laughs) no, it's going to be great. But what Paul sees in Philippi, what he sees with this group of people, we need to understand how absolutely radical this really was. He's not just impressed because they're generous. Do you remember where we started with this letter? He is impressed. He is joyful over Philippi because they are generous in their poverty. This is huge. Gordon Fee in his commentary actually links this, has has a little graphic where he shows joy plus poverty equals generosity. Not joy plus riches equals generosity, joy plus poverty. It's the widow with the two mites. Giving all that she had. What the Bible doesn't tell us, but what I think was probably going on, was not that she gave her last two cents weeping as she made her way home. But that she gave her last two cents rejoicing, wondering how God was going to provide next. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. Speaking about Philippi, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, In great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And man, that is countercultural to American life. That says, my joy is found in my riches. The American dream is get stuff. Paul says, no. If you equate, if you put together, if you add up what you don't have and what you give, it equals joy. There's truth here. Great truth. That giving, even when we don't have it, it proves a joyful faith. It increases faith. And by the way, when faith increases, anxiety decreases. Giving from want actually works to counteract anxiety. How? It trusts the giver. It forces you in that moment to look at God and say, I know you're my provider. You've heard the phrase probably many times. You can't outgive God. Can't do it. I challenge, I dare you. And I'm not concerned for our fellowship. I dare you. Choose a place to give and try to outgive God. See if you can give more than He returns or gives to you. It's not about playing games. It's not about scratching God's back and He scratches yours. He's going to provide everything you, underline this, need. You'll always have all you need. You might not have all you want, but you'll have everything you need. He will provide that. In fact, doesn't he say that? 
And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How rich is God? I'd say he's doing pretty well. Yeah. And not just his riches, but, but note the language. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is about, this is grace upon grace. This is never ending. This is a wealth beyond all imagination. In Malachi chapter 3, God talks about bring the tithe and I'll open the windows of heaven. Can you even imagine? The windows of heaven opening up and what can pour out of that, what God has? Well, what do you mean? What does God have? Well, you might just start by looking at creation. Is there anything in creation that is not His? That He didn't make? Does He not have the power to make something out of nothing? I'm down to my last dollar. No problem. He can print more. But when God prints money, it is always backed by His eternal riches. It's not empty stuff. When God provides, it's real. And it's guaranteed. Is there any limit to the wealth of the provision of God who gives grace upon grace? If you answer that question, no. There's no limit to the wealth of God. Then why do we ever struggle with giving it all? We would just say, I'll start with 10% and I'll get crazy from there. Because he has all things. Paul says in verse 20, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, wait just a minute. That kills me. Those of Caesar's household greet you. The Christians in Caesar's house. Nero. We are talking about Nero, relatives of Nero, slaves, servants, government officials of Nero are getting saved right under his nose. He's fiddling. They're getting saved. Why? Because Nero thought by incarcerating Paul, he could shut the whole thing down. That's what the gospel does. Go ahead. You know, I I, honestly, I'm a little crazy with this kind of thing, but I'm like, bring it on. Bring on the laws that say I can't preach the Bible and watch it flourish. Persecute the church in America and watch it expand and grow and explode with things that are excellent. Make it hard on us. No problem. The gospel is unstoppable. And here's Paul incarcerated and he is still spreading the gospel today, 2000 years later. Nero was a buffoon who had no idea what he was doing and even his own household were people getting saved. Paul said back in Philippians 1 verse 12, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And again, here he notes, especially those of Caesar's household. You just can't keep the gospel down. Not for long. Acts chapter 17 verse 6 tells us that at Thessalonica, where he went from Philippi, they were referred to as these who have turned the world upside down. It's what the gospel does. So what the gospel 
can do. It's what the gospel has done. And finally, Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And with that, Paul sends Epaphroditus off with the last of the four prison epistles. We've been tracking through all of these. A letter of liberty to Philemon, his friend. That letter of Christocentricity focused on the the person, the nature of Christ to Colossians. The heavenly letter to Ephesus. And finally, this joyful letter to Philippi. And I want to conclude all four letters just by saying this. If you haven't gotten this already, let's be absolutely clear. At the center of this and every other letter of Paul is not his imprisonment. They're prison letters. But at the center is a heart joyfully and entirely bound to Jesus. This is the one who said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Father, may we learn what that means. I I prayed it before. I want to pray it again, Lord. I just want to repeat myself. Change us by these words. Change us with the truth. Uh, Father, I pray tonight, each of us will go to our homes, and when the planes are not flying, (laughs) we'll reread this chapter and reapply what we've heard. May we be a people who are not anxious, who are anxious for nothing but in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Bring it all to you. Lord, may we be those who walk in the peace of God. May we as a fellowship, Holy Spirit, make us a fellowship of good repute. How I long, Father, for people to look at the bridge and say, oh, that's the group of people who look so much like Jesus. That's the group of people who we just don't see acting like everybody else in Oak Harbor and Anacortes and and Coopville and Bow. Those are the ones who, they're just so different over there. Father, make us different because of the peace of God which surpasses understanding, that fills us heart and mind, that centers us in on Jesus. May we be those who say, like Paul, to live as Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name.